Hello and welcome to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods. In this series, we're looking at five different research methods with a method expert and a dementia researcher that has experience in putting the method into practice. Today, you're going to need your glasses and headphones because we're looking at visual and creative methods. I'm Dr. Donica Mullen, I'm a Clinical Research Fellow at University of Edinburgh, and I'm delighted to be your host, trying to learn what's hot and what's not in the world of research methodology to improve my own work. Back in the studio, we have our expert in residence, Dr. Karen Hughes, and in Research Ranch, we have a great guest who, for those of you with good memories, will recognise from a previous show, Dr. Sarah Campbell. Hello, and thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you along. Now, I, I, to introduce you properly, Karen is an Associate Professor at University of Leeds, Director of the Timescapes Archive, Editor-in-Chief of the BSA Sociological Research Online, and Senior Fellow of the National Centre for Research Methods. She has extensive knowledge of research methodology and has even written books on the topic. Tell us where to buy your books, Karen. Um, Abe Books UK is a fantastic um, bookseller website. ABE. Um, you get great first and second hand um, books at good prices. All right. Where Do you make as much money from selling first hand as second hand books? I make no money out of it. Oh, <laughs> <It's on a laughs> oh no. No, the writers I... make nothing. No, no, oh no. no. <laughs> well, I'm altering my plans for the future, my future <laughs> career. Okay, next we come to Sarah, senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University, teaching on their integrated health and social care programme. Prior to this role, Sarah worked as a researcher for 11 years within the Dementia and Ageing Research Team at the University of Manchester, led by Professor John Keady. Her main research focus in recent years has been within dementia and ageing. This included work on neighbourhoods and dementia programme and finding creative ways to go about her research. Sarah, I did a sneak peek at your Twitter feed before the show and I was delighted to be rewarded with my favourite kind of content, cats and dogs. Just how many pets do you have and what are they called? Let's make them famous. <laughs> um, I've only got two pets, but a dog and a cat. <laughs> and um, my dog <laughs> is called Sammy and my cat is called Maud. So, uh, Very nice. And, um, and I have shut them out of this space today so they don't uh, <laughs> interrupt because they can definitely get in the way. <laughs> well, brilliant. Well, th that's the ice broken. Let's get on with the show. So what do I know? We begin each podcast with me giving a summary of what I understand of the method we're discussing, which of course today is visual and creative methods, without the need for specsavers. I would guess this is a new methodology. My first thought is that this could be about using things like photographs, videos, films, maybe even things like smells to inspire a reaction, and then perhaps exploring how different images affect people. In dementia, of course, we know that music and things like reminiscence therapy through pictures have been very popular. However, I have to admit, I did cheat a little and check online, and a basic look through the NCRM website seemed to return lots of information on visualising research, so I may have got this entirely wrong. Karen, give us the lowdown, because I get the feeling I may be completely off track. Well, visualising research tends more towards um, the presentation of research data and findings, so it might be maps or graphs or illustrations, um, particularly of statistical data. But the visual methods we're going to talk about today um, are more about forms of research engagement rather than data presentation. So we might use um, visual methods to elicit accounts from participants, such as through photo voice, where people take photos of things that are important to them, or photo elicitation, where images are brought into research interactions by the researchers to act as prompts to dialogue. Um, and a good example of this is in the work of Dr. Anna Tarrant in her research with men in low-income contexts. We might use um, visual methods such as films or zines or animations. Um, they'd be created by participants to express their experiences from their own perspectives. Um, 
see if you think about children that works really really well because they might not have a very sophisticated vocabulary with which to describe their lived experience but um if you ask them to write a song or write a poem or draw a picture or something like that that they're actually able to capture quite a lot of nuance um and expression um through those forms of engagement um so Visual methods in this way, where participants actually create visual outputs, um, are usually forms of collective endeavour, uh, where people, you know, work together through how they might express their ideas or what sort of stories they'd like to tell. Um, and a really good example that I'd encourage anyone to go and have a look at is the project by um Professor Helen Lomax at the University of Huddersfield, uh, where she's um, done research with children on their experiences of living through COVID. And she's done a whole range of things. Um, and there were all sorts of animations with songs written by children and the animations. Some of them are by the children themselves. It's very, very lovely. So those two approaches involve um, like a form of data of research production, uh, where you produce visual materials. And those materials can also um, a form of research data for the researchers to analyse make sense of. And then we might um, create films with or of or about participants to tell their tales to others. So a really good ex uh, example of that might be um, filming young refugees' experiences of hostile life um, when they have entered um, the UK of a period of time. Um, but then visual methods, you know, they might you might uh, use visual methods like photography or film or soundscapes or uh, sorry those aren't visual creative methods such as soundscapes of particular social settings um, and so um, I'm sure Sarah's going to talk about this a little bit later so visual methods are really really good for ethnographic research um, and research that's driven by methods of observation. Wonderful Karen thank you for that introduction it seems to me that this isn't so much a separate method of itself, but that there are various techniques within it. Um, is that a, a fair a fair assumption? Absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, um, more broadly, to fit with today's podcast, is that visual methods often sit within a, a group of methodologies that we describe as creative methods. So creative is not only um, in, referring to how people might create things as part of their um, uh, as part of their research, such as, for example, through the use of modelling clay. Um, as I mentioned before, zines, animations, illustrations, other, other sorts of images. Um, but also refer to how researchers might be creative in engaging with people in order that they facilitate, they give them the best chance to describe their lives as they themselves are, are living it. So this is all, I think, a, a key shared um, aspect of all these methodologies is that they that they're trying to serve what we describe as a democratization agenda which is around um, democratizing the researcher researched relationship um, and the intentions of, of research so that the uh, um, the interests that both researchers may have and participants may have are sort of equally served uh, through research engagement. I love that. I love that. It's something that I often hear talked about and I strive for, but it's really difficult to do in certain types of research program, that democratization, that leveling of the the sort of um, the power structure in research. So that's fantastic to hear that this is a one way of, of doing it. Um, You've mentioned certain things, and I imagine it's one of the hard parts of this is trying to limit yourself, your your approach, because it seems there's so many different creative approaches you can take. But overall, is this a hard? Are these hard methods to use? Well, no. That and the point of this is that um, some of these um, strategies that you use um, are, are not difficult. So, for example, photo voice, where you encourage people to take photographs of their lives so for example um, in research on poverty so Anna Terence research a, a really a powerful image was of um, a phone a phone bill or electricity bill that had arrived and what that meant was that the parent a single dad was having to choose between you know food or or, or heating this you know uh, uh, um, that 
just this simple image expressed you know these broader dynamics in someone's life so and taking a photo is a really simple thing you know we do it all the time if we have smartphone technology for example that you know you, a lot of our um, life and our life worlds have increasingly become i think orientated to visual forms of representation so if you think for young people doing research with young people without using visual methods i think is missing out on a significant aspect of what it means to be young in in today's world engaged you know where part of your life is is spent on social media that's so true um, we're going to talk to Sarah in a moment about her experience of using this method, but are there any key papers, uh, other than the, the one you mentioned, that you can think of to highlight uh, for people using this? And are there any other challenges to using this method? Yeah, it's hugely time consuming. It's very expensive. So if you're needing to provide cameras or film film things and go through production, that's that's quite challenging. The other thing is, is that there are a lot of enhanced ethical concerns around using visual methods. So for example, if you're asking children to um, depict their everyday lives, uh, you really are entering into the life worlds of children and not only does that require special um, consideration and thought, um, but also uh, uh, um, it, how how might you manage, for example, uh, questions of anonymity or confidentiality, where images endure. So if it's images of the children or of the children's family that they have taken that are digitised in any in any way, that those images we know can endure indefinitely. So there are... There are all of those sorts of things. And there's another aspect as well. And again, I think um, Helen Lomax is really great here. Uh, is that She talks about the politics of letting go because the images that people take um, and that they describe in certain ways and that researchers understand in certain ways to different audiences in different situations at different times may be taken up and read in very different ways. So it might well be the images that were hugely well-intentioned in one context of young working class girls, for example, um, might be misappropriated in, in other more sensationalised contexts and be used to support narratives of poverty porn, for example. So that's, it's those challenges. And then the, the, the tougher question maybe is how do you overcome those challenges or say for that last example, have you ever seen any paper that tried a, an approach to overcome these, these difficulties? Well, that is the that is the paper by um, Janet Fink and Helen Lomax. Um, and, and that paper is called um, Sharing Images and Spoiling Meanings. And the fuller title is Class gender and ethics in visual research with girls. So that absolutely is, is a, a really important paper, I think, for people to go and, and have a look at. But it fits with a much broader literature on, for example, how you might um, uh, depict ethnicity or age or illness or poverty or mental ill health, those sorts of things, because images have the capacity to fit in and support quite problematic stereotypical narratives um, and often they're used in research or produced in research to resist precisely those narratives so what happens if inadvertently they're misappropriated further down the line and um, so that's a, an excellent paper of um, picking up on those sorts of challenges. I look forward to, to checking it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to talk to Sarah in a moment about her experience of using this method. Um, and you have mentioned a few key papers about the method. Mm. But can are there any key papers that you can think of that are a good example of using, using visual and creative methods? Um, I think a, a book is uh, uh, that I can suggest, which is a generalist overview. Um, and that's by Gillian Rose. Um, and she wrote Visual Methodologies, an introduction to researching with visual materials. Um, and so that's a that's a really um, great example um, of, of how, you know, that's a good start. And I've got some more that I'll suggest at the end as well. OK, brilliant. And a reminder, they'll be in the show notes at the end. Now, Sarah, can you tell us about your research, things that you discovered, how you found it? Yeah, certainly. Um, so today I'm talking about um, a study called Neighbourhoods 
our people, our places. Um, and this was a study that was funded through the National Institute for Health Research and the Economic and Social Research Council, uh, part of a wider study called Neighbourhoods and Dementia, which had within it eight work packages and were led by Professor John Keady at the University of Manchester. And so our work package, Neighbourhoods, Our People, Our Places, was interested in the role of neighbourhoods in the lives of people living with dementia. And it was interested in how neighbourhoods either facilitate or disable people's everyday lives. And we were particularly interested in the idea of neighbourhoods starting from not the threshold of the home, but from within the home for our participants. Um, so we had a number of different types of creative methods. Um, and the method that I particularly want to focus on today is um, a home tour method. So we were asking participants to show us their homes um, and we were doing this either by recording um, their tour of the homes through video capturing um, using a camcorder or if participants didn't want that we were doing it by audio recording and taking photographs around the home. So we were inspired by the work of anthropologist Sarah Pink and um, she's a ethnographer, a sensory ethnographer and we were particularly interested in this method because it would allow us to think about the kind of sensory and bodily aspects of home as people moved through their homes showing us their homes and we were trying to sort of elicit narratives of the home of, for people living with dementia um, from their perspectives. So we were interested in what was important about home and how home life might have changed because of dementia. We were interested in the kind of things that people did at home. And we were kind of using the spaces that people were in to elicit these kinds of stories and narratives and memories. Um, and so we found that sort of discussions about the place or the room that we were in um, would would sometimes lead to us thinking about broader meanings of home. So, for example, one participant told us um, when we were in the kitchen about the fact that they no longer really took part in cooking in the way that they once had. But then they also opened a cupboard and showed us all these baking um, accoutrements and baking tools that they then described um, you know, how they still carried out baking with their grandchildren. So we started to learn through this discussion, through being in this space about their continued relationship with their grandchildren, their role as a grandparent. Um, we also learned about loss from them talking about the things that they were no longer able to do. So in a way, the home kind of became a sort of third actor in the conversation that we were having with our participants. That's brilliant. I love that idea of the home as a as a third actor, and and it's, I suppose that was an important insight to to move away from what lots of people would think their neighbourhood is the area outside their home and the the street outside their home or the the, the their neighbours, but to see that the neighbourhood begins with from within the home, as well. Did you did you find much resistance to that idea or when you read about that idea? Is it generally widely accepted that the neighbourhood is within the home that it begins within the home? Um, prior to the project beginning, we'd carried out a literature review actually around neighbourhoods and dementia. And yeah, the home, the, the neighbourhood very much was described as beginning outside of the home, as you've just said, being the sort of threshold to the neighbourhood once you left, shut that front door and were outside. But what was particularly interesting about our research and about the findings from our research is, is this interrelationship between neighbourhood and home. And so some of the, um, and, and in particular, when doing the, the home tours, um, what we would, we weren't necessarily just staying in the home. For example, we would go into gardens and backyards, but also people were talking to us about the views from their home. They were talking about what they could see from outside the window. Um, and so the connection to neighbourhood was something that was much more fluid than just beginning once you left the home. And I can imagine that relationship was even more important to that, that that home has a, as a third partner has an even bigger role during lockdown when people were stuck in their home and their only experience of the neighborhood was through their through their window for quite a while there um 
you you mentioned a couple of techniques like video capturing or, or failing that audio and, and photography. Did you find that you had to adapt anything to accommodate uh, this work uh, involving people with dementia? Um, yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. I suppose some of it isn't wasn't so much about adapting as kind of the underpinning premise that we were interested in the meaning of home to our participants so not necessarily in the accuracy of things that they described to us as we were walking around the home or of naming objects correctly or even you know remembering what something meant in the correct way we were interested in what stimulated participants um, as meaningful to them and what they chose to tell us or show us themselves about their homes um uh, and we were very mindful, though, as you you know, that people didn't necessarily want to be captured on film. So those participants were the ones that chose maybe for us not to document via camcorder and to use for audio recording and to take photographs as we moved around the home. But actually, we found that participants, it, what, what's important in terms of working with people living with dementia and these kinds of methods. And I think referring back to really what Karen has said, Karen has said around, um, you know, democratizing the process and giving access to people, um, using stimuli and movement around the home was a way of enabling people to tell their stories in situ, um, show us what they did around their homes rather than just tell us. So it was a, a method that, actually rather than it was adapt was very useful for people living with dementia to be able to not just rely on kind of verbal storytelling but to show us things and point to things as well um yeah so i think it's a you know these kinds of methods can be very helpful at including people that's such a lovely clear example of that democratization the leveling of the playing field between researcher and and participant and Instead of the usual of the researcher going with the questions that are all prepared and then going with that power dynamic and getting the answers that the researcher wants, it's sort of going to the participant saying, what would you like to show me? And, and then I'll, I'll do with that what I, what I will and what I can. Um, fascinating. Um, what are the, the main legacies or what is the main legacy of the work that you've done so far? Um, well, the project has, we have written quite a lot of papers from the, the work, and recently we've had a book published through Policy Press, um, Dementia and Place, um, Practices, Experiences and Connections. Um, but we've also been keen to use the work in more localised ways. It was a multi-centre study, so the study took part, um, took place in the Fourth Valley in Scotland, in Greater Manchester in England, and also in um, Ostergotland in Sweden. So each of the sites have done quite a lot of localised intervention work. So in Stirling, there's been a project that's continued on, which has been creating links with local organisations, businesses and dementia support groups. And in Greater Manchester, we've been involved in work using the work to support local evaluations um, and also to support kind of local organisations in um, the way that they well, coming up with kind of projects to create more dementia inclusive neighbourhoods. And later on this year, we're planning to submit a paper on these home tours. Um, and we're also involved in work with colleagues in France, um, exploring how policy and legislation works in practice to support everyday lives. And we're also trying to develop new work around these areas as well. So there's that's fantastic what a what a proud legacy to have sounds like a lot of impacts a lot of improvements and benefit to a lot of people so congratulations um we we mentioned earlier and i know from your bio that you like to try various creative processes and you've mentioned a couple already so far so, such as audio recording or video and photography what other creative methods have you tried um, well, in this project uh, as a whole, we use lots of different creative methods. So we, um, as well as the home, the video home tours and the, the photography home tours, we also carried out walking interviews with participants. So with people living with dementia and their family carers, sometimes we would go on a, a bit like the home tour, but we'd go on a walk around the neighbourhood. We didn't video record that, but we audio recorded and took photographs. 
Um, so we ask people to show us um, where places around their neighborhood, their local area where they went. Um, we also carried out participatory network mapping interviews. So a bit like that other kind of visual method that Karen um, mentioned around um, producing something. So family carers produced um, these diagrams of their social networks. So within this study, we've, you know, we've done quite a lot of different methods in, in order to try and involve and include people. Um, but in other projects that I've worked on, I, I, I mean, I've used visual methods quite a lot. In another previous study um, funded by the Economic Social Research Council, I also worked on um, a project called the Hair and Care Project, colloquially known as that, where we used video data collection. So we did observate, it was um, an ethnographic study that we carried out in care homes, day centres and, and, and hospital wards, um, dementia specialist dementia units, um, where we video recorded hairdressing activities. And um, we were looking particularly at the role of uh, appearance through the lens of care-based hairdressing. So that was, we did lots of different types of film recording for that. Um, and, and, and actually less, I suppose, in terms of the method, but in terms of my analysis in my PhD work, which was around atmospheres of dementia care, I, I actually, in many ways, did quite traditional field notes and observations of um, in-care settings. But I tried to use a sensory and embodied um, narrative analysis to look at how um, how the senses were and, and sort of bodies were kind of telling stories and, and involved in um, productions of atmospheres. Wow. OK, that sounds like a huge variety. Uh, it must be so fascinating to work in that area rather than have honed one specific technique at doing a genetic analysis and just doing that over and over, but to, <laughs> to try all these different things. And that sounds fascinating. It sounds amazing. Is it, is it an area that you'd recommend to other budding researchers to, to use these creative yeah, methods? I mean, definitely. I think that, um, I think it is very much as, as Karen has said around thinking about the participants that you're working with and how can you, how can you adapt methods and work with people in a way that enables them to be able to have their voices heard or to tell stories their own in their own way and so I think kind of privileging sort of verbal storytelling when you're working with people who might have cognitive impairment who might have aphasia may not be able to use words you know in the same way as they once did it's really important to find other ways to reach people's experiences and so that has what that's what's driven the kind of methods that I've been involved in using really finding other ways to include people in the research. So now we have a description of what the method is and an example of how it has been used. Let's get into the detail and provide some top tips for anyone who is new to using this method. In this segment, I'm going to ask some quick, straightforward questions to both guests on how to put method into practice. Karen, the first ones are for you and I'm keeping a timer on it today. Question one, how does someone prepare to use these types of methods and, and how on earth do you code or, or analyse the data that you get from it? Well, it depends which method you're going to go for, because it may be that you need um, specialist equipment, for example. Um, so... Um, there's a whole set of pragmatic considerations with the use of visual methodology that you probably wouldn't have with interview methodology. Often with interviews, you go in, you need some means of recording and it's 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 often quite sad. But with visual methods, there's a lot of that sort of pragmatic planning and testing and researching before you even implement any sort of um, uh, uh, approach. Um, and how do you code or analyse visual data? I mean, I think that's the other thing. It depends what it is that you're looking for. And I, I seem to be saying the same in, in quite a lot of the podcasts. How do we analyse this data? Well, what do you want to find out? But I think it's exactly the same set of questions, which is, um, so, you know, thinking about um, Sarah's examples of, of your research, Sarah, um, you know, when you're saying, well, 
people were talking about how they do and don't use their homes. And, and I absolutely agree with you. I think homes are porous and the idea that somehow that they're not, which is what happened during COVID, <laughs> um, is, is, I think that's what COVID illustrated, you know, it's quite a problematic set of assumptions. But then not only checking who may or may not be coming in for visual capture, but how people are using different equipment, um, that it you said, you know, gives insight into people's um, relationships and which ones they can sustain over which periods and in which circumstances. Um, So I think one of the things about visual methods is that we're using them in order to get um, a view um, from somewhere which is not our view. And that is often why we're trying to use these sorts of methodologies. So how and what we analyse for has to uh, be part of a sort of iterative dialogic process um, as part of our analysis. What is it? What what did we in effect see or hear or encounter through the use of either visual or more creative methodologies, for example, for people who... Um, are are visually paired, impaired, or have visual, you know, challenges in in that in that area, um, uh, but ultimately we're often engaged um, in research for a particular set of purposes that we've identified prior to the research, even if that's been with the participants. So our analysis will inevitably always be shaped by the sorts of overall intentions of that the research study, however those have been formulated. Okay, so one the key thing I'm taking is that it that this these these methods these creative and visual methods mm-hmm. are excellent at getting information from the viewpoint of the participant. Yeah. Um, what what other methodologies would you find that these techniques are are particularly complementary to use alongside? Well, Sarah's mentioned some. So you've talked about participant mapping, walking methods. So methodologies that we might also describe as immersive or situated, where what we're trying to get a sense of is is who is where, when, why, with whom and in which ways. And and so you might want to combine a whole range. Sarah's used the language of sensory methodology. So soundscapes, for example, uh, might might be a really good way of beginning to build up quite a layered account. Um, One area that I mentioned right at the beginning, which uh, was around using visual methods in order to depict um, people's experiences, in order to present them um, to others. So the film might only be part of an overall research programme, which may well have involved a lot of consultation. So how do you use methods in order to express to others? So you might want to use a whole bundle of methods in order to um, understand what needs to be depicted, what needs to be illustrated or demonstrated or filmed as well. So, um, you know, we, I think commonly in any research, we use lots of different sorts of data, we're always combining different data, whether that's existing literature, existing evidence, conversations with gatekeepers, observations that we've made ourselves, discussions in research um, teams and things like that. Um, uh, so, yeah, so visual methods will, I think, always be part of a panoply of uh, methods in a research study. Brilliant. One thing I haven't heard a huge amount about is is technologies that are used with it, other than, say, with the photography and recording equipment. Do you think the modern world is starting to link this with AI or facial recognition or anything like that? That's that's a really interesting um, uh, uh, question, actually, Donica, because I think what we're beginning to talk about when we're moving in that direction is... A, a, a sort of a landscape of visual capture and um, visual analysis or visual capture at a remove. So we're rather than this up close and personal interventions that Sarah and I have been talking about so far, where you're really engaging with people in ways that allow them to, ex- you know, express the most personal aspects of their lives. Things like AI and the use of images that have perhaps been captured more remotely um, is, is, I think, 
often for quite different um, research purposes, but nevertheless might be really interesting in SOA's community research if what we're using are um, uh, the, the sort of recorded capture of neighbourhoods and we're able to observe certain sorts of, you know, for example, you know, traffic or the movement or busy, you know, when neighbourhoods are busy, when they're quiet, who's doing what, when, where, and sort of that aggregated view. Um, so that's a that's an interesting one um, as Amazing. well. It's an interesting direction. It sure is. And and you mentioned a few things, yeah, traffic noise or, or neighbours noise. Is there a repository you can think of where you can obtain different stimuli? Oh, well, endless. I'm, okay. Genuinely, I mean, we're absolutely drowning in them. So if you think about the uh, uh, British Library's um, sound archive, uh, you know, uh, the BBC has got its that history archive. Um, the Mass Observations has has got a, a mass obs. You know, it's endless projects and and uh, collections of visual and other sorts of data that absolutely capture um, a time and and a, 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 a situation or a moment in in our collective um, social history. So I think. The challenge is much more <laughs> around deciding what we're going to actually sample and where and why and when and how actual much of it are we going to be using. So, yeah, I, I think that there is endless, endless and creative possibilities um, for, for working with existing um, archives and repositories in the UK. OK, great. With visual Thank materials. You. Yeah. OK. Now, Sarah, it's your turn. Are you ready? <laughs> What skills uh, should someone work on developing who wants to use visual and, and creative methods? Someone like me who's not naturally particularly creative, would you, would you warn me against these methods? No, I definitely wouldn't. And, um, and I, I don't think really, in you know, technically, I don't think you need to be massively skilled to use a camcorder or use a basic um, camera. Um, but there are courses that you can do. I did actually do a course um, quite a while ago, but at the at the University of Manchester as part of the Granada Centre, I did do um, a training in filming for field work. But that, I mean, some of the people doing that kind of course might be looking to use, to create their field work, make it into films as well, to use that as ethnographic filmmaking. But um, I think a lot of the skills are the kind of skills that you generally need in qualitative research. You need to be able to, um, it's about relationships and trust. Um, you, you're asking, especially, you know, with the, these kinds of studies where we're asking people to show us around their homes. And, um, and I think Karen already mentioned visual ethics. You really need to think about if you're going to have any skills, it's more about thinking around those kinds of ethical considerations that you might need to um, look at and be sort of be aware of and think about in terms of uh, gathering visual data or working in this kind of way. So I, I definitely think it's something that um, anybody can try. And I think that you choosing your method as already as well, Karen has said, is about what is it that you're hoping to find out? What What is the knowledge that you're trying to produce? Um, so that, that should always be the guide, I guess, to thinking about those methods that you choose. This maybe isn't that relevant of a question, but I'm just so used to thinking like this. But how would you evaluate participants' responses? Are there, there they, they, the information that they gather? Um, well, I think it is actually a really interesting question because um, I think you might be able to imagine sometimes when we were carrying out the home tours with people, we were really interested in the perspective of the person living with dementia, but sometimes family carers might be there and family carers might sometimes want to correct a participant and tell us that the story they're telling isn't quite accurate or they can't, they're not quite remembering what an object is in the right way. And I suppose we weren't interested in that. We weren't interested in the accuracy of the story. We were interested in what participants wanted to share with us, what they found meaningful. And, and actually what that also revealed to us that was quite important is that it, it's easy to make assumptions that 
around kind of the importance of particular memorabilia or mementos around the home and how meaningful that might be for somebody. But actually, if somebody with dementia can't remember what something is, it doesn't necessarily mean that the home isn't still meaningful. And it was more important sometimes for a participant to tell us about the seat that they like to sit in to watch telly or to see out of the window than it was to remember, um, you know, a particular portrait that had been taken for an anniversary or for a birthday um, and I would say as well actually coming back to in terms of skill around some of those the methods thinking around kind of photo elicitation as well that um, you it can be difficult if somebody doesn't remember who somebody is in a photo and they can become distracted by that so the, you have to I suppose in terms of the skill of the method as well is about thinking how you can adapt that and and get around these things that you're not really interested in what people can remember accurately but you're trying to see what feeling it provokes or what um, story it provokes. Brilliant thank you so much now we, we touched on it with Karen about the, the with AI and technology uses um, of, of this sort of approach. But in your experience, is this a methodology that, that lends itself better to smaller groups um, or, or do you think it can be used on, on a larger scale? And I guess that depends on the actual method being applied, but for, for your experience. Um, well, I think as, as already has been talked about as well, the thing about this using these kinds of methods is, is around the kind of time frame and how much time they can take to use. So I suppose that's why sometimes kind of smaller samples, um, it can then be easier to manage the amount of data that you have to analyze, or it can take a, you know, going to do a home tour with somebody in their home, you can't kind of come in and go out within an hour, you're there for a, an extensive amount of time. So I think that the constraints, practicalities of these kinds of studies can mean that doing it on a larger scale can be more complex but I suppose with our study it was a multi-site study so we were able to kind of scale up I suppose um, by collecting data in each of those sites using these methods but yes it's it's not necessarily it is a qualitative and timely endeavour so. We we talked about the ethics around um uh, having photographs and, and Helen Lomax has that sharing images, the, the, the guide, which I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking out. Have you come across any other special considerations in relation to ethics uh, when using various creative or, or visual um, methods? Yeah, I think there are lots of um, ethical considerations um, using visual methods, but using them with people living with dementia in particular. So thinking around, um, you know, people remembering what you're there to do, people... Um, remembering what's going to happen to the data afterwards and so um, for example we were only asking people to consent to use it to collecting the data for us to use in analysis and that we wouldn't be sharing any kind of identifiable data in presentations or papers unless we had then gone back and received consent to do so um, so I think that that's a really important consideration what happens to the data it you that sort of visual, you know, identifying people and their homes um, and, and also people, family members within their homes, not just in terms of their presence, but if you're looking at photographs on the wall and you, you're videoing those and you haven't got permission to include those people in research. So you have to think about all aspects of where that data is going and who's seeing it. But also consideration, some of those practical things that Karen was talking about around kind of, you know, collect it, it's you can take up a lot of space with this kind of data. So you've got to think about the storage. You have to think about how do you get the data from the camera to a secure computer system? How are you going to do that so that it's not, um, you know, the data doesn't become vulnerable? Um, uh, so. And I think sort of, yeah, I mean, ensuring that only people who've consented to take part are, are kind of involved, really, or people know what you're doing. So, yeah, lots of different ethics to consider and to think about. 
Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that would be a, a key thing that you would say to anybody thinking of, of using these methods. Are there, are there other top tips for, for people who, who'd want to embark on a, a PhD or a career using, using visual and creative methods? Um, I mean, for me, I guess you have to think about the, you know, going to ethics committee and what the ethical committee are going to think about the methods that you're using. And um, some of what we found really important to do is to really provide as much information as possible about the kind of methods, what we were doing, how we would support people, how we would um, look after people. I suppose the other thing is to remember that you're asking people to tell you they're in their personal spaces telling you maybe about loss and um, things that could be distressing. So thinking about how you're going to support the participant and yourself and ethic committees very much want to know about these kinds of things. So I think we prepared, as well as our research protocol, we prepared um, ethics protocols as well, um, saying exactly how we would manage the data, how we would look after participants, um, how, kind of trying to think about all kinds of different um you know, practical things that could happen or things that could happen, things that you can't prepare for as well, looking at those kinds. So I think top tip is really preparing, really thinking through all of those aspects. Um, and I suppose the other important element and something that we also included in our research was that we did involve people living with dementia um, and family carers in the design of our methods and in piloting our methods. So we worked with dementia support groups, visiting them, talking through our plans. Um, so I think, you know, really engaging with in public and patient participation or those kinds of um, aspects of the research is really important in preparing to do this kind of work. Okay, well, this is awesome. I'm already thinking of ways I could use this in my own research, and there are clearly so many different ways it could be used. So let's recap on what we have learned so far. So we started by talking about how creative and visual methods like these are often a collective endeavor and they tend to give people and participants the best chance to describe their experience of what it's like from, from their point of view. And, and in a way, it, it can lead to a democratization of the relationship between the participant and the researcher um, by giving a, a more level power balance between the two. Visual and creative methods can often be complementary to many other methods, particularly any immersive methods or trying to get a point of view across. And it's really crucial that because of the many different ethical uh, considerations with these methods, that we give a lot of time and consideration to these in our applications prior to, to using it and to, to prepare for, for many different ethical eventualities. So in this final part of the show, we're going to discuss common pitfalls, challenges, and how to avoid them. We're going to whiz right through this. Sarah, tell us what challenges did you come across that we haven't already mentioned when you were delivering your research and what might you do differently next time? I think um, really it's, it is about how time consuming it can be. And so I think if anything, often analysis times get squeezed in research timetables. And I think I would have given more time for the analysis, especially of this kind of data. And, and also just to say that working with people living with dementia to remember that um, capacity can change, people can, their well-being, you know, their wellness can fluctuate. So thinking about how you build into the time scale, um, taking into account those kinds of considerations too. Brilliant. Karen, this is where I'd normally ask you about common pitfalls and how to avoid them. But I think we've managed to cover all these topics uh, and, and the main points in our conversation so far. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think that we really have. And I think Sarah's given some fantastic examples of the sorts of concerns and challenges of using visual um, methods and creative methods more generally. Great. Well, that brings us on to the final segment uh, in which I'm going to give our expert, Karen, one minute to tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. OK, so anything by Helen Lomax. Um, people might want to go to her project website at the University of Huddersfield to see what she's been doing. And there's some gorgeous, gorgeous examples of some of her work. Um, there's the SAGE um, 
Visual Methods Collection by Jason Hughes, as well as the Sage Handbook of Visual Research Methods by Luke Powells and Dawn Manet. Um, uh, Sarah's already mentioned Sarah Pink. Um, Sarah Pink's website, she's really into ethnography, but it's absolutely jam-packed with all sorts of materials to do with different types of ethnographies and a whole host of resources on visual methods. Um, we've mentioned the democratisation agenda, and it's well worth going and having a look at the paper by uh, Rosalind Edwards and Tula Branelli um, called Approaches to Democratising Qualitative Research Methods. And I'm going to put a little plug in for Sociological Research Online, the journal of which I'm editor-in-chief, because um, there's been a team of us. Uh, we've developed and we are now launching a brand new publication format through SAGE and the BSA as part of Sociological Research Online, and that's called Beyond the Text. And it's a publication format that is for properly creative outputs. Um, it's being launched at the British Sociological Association, the first inaugural special issue, headed up by Helen Lomax. And um, as when it comes in, when it comes online, um, all of the creative um, pieces and outputs, films, scenes, poems, songs, whatever it is, um, are accompanied by a companion piece. And the companion piece will um, does outlines the reasons for the, the creative output, but also will give a, a sort of a potted history of the of the methodology and the ethical ethical concerns around it. So as that grows, that's going to be a tremendous resource for anyone using visual or properly creative um, research methods. That sounds fantastic. I might just well replace my Netflix subscription going forward. Sarah, did you have any uh, other resources you wanted to add um, at this stage? I suppose I just wanted to say that the that Andrew Clark, who led, who's talked on this previously, who led the programme in um, Greater Manchester, it, it was, you know, he was like our methods expert, really. And he's written quite a lot about using visual methods as well and um, walking interviews and using creative methods. So, um, yeah, Professor Andrew Clark at the University of Salford, I'd plug his work and thank him for his guidance on supporting me to the visual and creative um, researcher. Amazing. Well, thank you so much both. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So let me say an enormous thank you to our stupendous guest, the astounding Dr. Karen Hughes and the inspiring Dr. Sarah Campbell. Thanks so much. Thank it's you. Lovely. It's been great to have you here. Thank you so much to all our listeners. Uh, with the show notes, you'll find links to the, all the resources mentioned by our guests. So please join us next time on the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Institute for Research Methods.